A handout? Everybody has? Very good. How about in this section here? Anybody? Over here? There you go, Dan. Couple there. And then way over here, anybody need? Good work, guys. Thank you very much. So we'll be looking at the, that lesson, lesson five, and it is our final session together. So we'll get into it quickly because there's a, a decent bit there to, to cover. Announcements, this Wednesday, no midweek classes, services at all because the next day is Thanksgiving, but we'll resume the following week. One week from today is Ordinance Sunday, so during the worship hour, 9.30, the entirety of the hour will be devoted to the observance of the Lord's table, and then at 5 o'clock uh, in the afternoon next Sunday, we'll have the Ordinance of, and for that, we have a dinner, and for the dinner, we need uh, food. Uh, we bring, the church buys the main item, but we ask for uh, volunteers to bring other things, and there is a list for that. You see down at the bottom, it says, see our website, cbctrenton.com, for food sign-up. So if you go there, there's a list of the different categories we need, and if you'll indicate the quantity that you're able to bring for one or more of those, that would be great. Also next Sunday, during this hour, so this series, Worry-Free Decision-Making, ends today. But next week, we're going to have the newcomer's orientation. And as the name suggests, that is for newcomers. So that is for you. If you've been attending, you're looking for a church, you're thinking about this as your church, we offer this three times a year for four weeks in a row during our second hour to give you information to help you make that decision. So I lead that class uh, this hour, then next Sunday. We will be in a classroom. I will be in a classroom out that back door across the hallway. And any of you who are new, I would encourage you to attend that. It doesn't obligate you to anything. We don't pressure you after you take it to do anything. We give you a notebook of material that we go through that tells you as much as we can about our church to help you make a decision in that, in that regard. So that, that will be going on. And that will be whatever number of you uh, that fit into that category. Simultaneous with that, Pastor Larry will be leading for four weeks our Membership 101 class, and that is for people who have joined our church since the last time we did this. And that for these are people who are now members, but it takes a deeper dive into what membership means and some of the opportunities that are available to you and some of the inner workings of our church. Uh, that'll all, you'll get an invitation for that because we know who you are, the people who uh, have joined since the last time. Our Crossroads class, that is our young adult class, they're going to meet in their own class for those four weeks uh, as, as well. And then, and they're going to be talking about dating, I think. In fact, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what they're going to be talking about, dating. So for those of you that are you know, young adults, you're not, I think, past 30. Uh, there's no hard and fast rule. They don't card you at the door. So... <laughs> So you can attend that, and Brother Bob Fight will be teaching that. I'm sure it'll be great. Everybody else, if you don't fit into the, either of those three categories, Newcomer's Orientation, Membership 101, Crossroads, then you'll be here in the auditorium. And we're going to have a couple of our guys teaching during those uh, weeks. And Dr. Combs is going to begin for us, and he's going to do uh, a few weeks on church history. He's going to be looking at the development of denominations and where they came from. So I am sure that'll be a fascinating study. So everybody will have something that will be profitable for those four weeks, starting next Sunday during this hour. All right. I have, the last several years uh, in particular, I have been trying to figure out why it is 
that Christian people, by, by every metric, every study that you see, Christian people, of all people, are most likely to believe in fact-free conspiracy theories. Yeah, evangelicals. We fit, we fit in that category. That doesn't mean you believe in fact-free conspiracy theories. It doesn't mean I do. You might. I, you know, I might. But our tribe always is at the, the top of the list of people who do that, who believe in, in those. I've, I've had to, over the years, I've had to chase kind of people out of our church, sort of, <laughs> for this reason. Like, uh, I have, now I say chase them out, just sort of reprimand and say, well, that's not the way we roll here. I've actually had someone visiting our church. They weren't a member, but they visited regularly, and they were getting people aside, and they were trying to prove to them that the earth is flat. I'm not making that up. And when I found that out, I said, not true, don't do it. Uh, I've had other people who have, been try have tried in the past to prove that the moon landing never happened, that that was fake. And they're all there's a whole list of these kinds of things that circulate. And they come into churches. And Christian people just seem to be susceptible to them a lot. John, John MacArthur said years ago, he said, it, it, I don't understand it, but Christian people seem to be some of the most gullible people in the world. And I could go on about these, you know, these things that people get jazzed about, and there's a whole long list of them, and some of them more current than those. Those have been circulating for a long, long time. The reason I do that, the reason I say this to you here, the reason when I hear that kind of thing, I get a person aside and I say, we don't roll that way, you can't do that here is because I think it harms the reputation of Christ. I think it harms the reputation of the church when we come off that way. And it harms our church in particular when people think that's, that's somehow approved, that that's what we're like, we're not. And so I, I make it a point to try to tell people that. We are people who believe in objective truth. And we believe that truth is ascertained then by the use of the mind and that truth comes to the mind from outside of us. And so what we mean by objective as opposed to subjective, truth is not determined by what I think or what I think about it or what you think or what you think about it. Truth is outside of us. And we process it through the mind, the, the mind that our God gave us to do that very thing. So to put it another way, we are not, as we saw in a previous lesson, and we will repeat in this lesson, we are not mystical. We're not mystics. Mystics believe that truth bypasses the mind. And if you're, and if you're, a, and if you're a theistic mystic, then you believe God bypasses the mind in communicating truth to you. And some of our Pentecostal friends that I grew up Pentecostal, you all know, believe that. They believe that that's how you know that the Spirit is moving on you because the Spirit, bypassing the mind, gives your spirit some kind of feeling about that. 
The Spirit is prompting me to do something. The Spirit's telling me to do something. But the important thing for this discussion is it's bypassing the mind. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, that entire chapter is about how the Spirit operates and how it was being misunderstood in the church in Corinth. And Paul's having to spend three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, to try to correct this. And in chapter 14 and verse 15, he says, and here's my paraphrase, the Spirit operates on the mind. Here's what he says. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see the important place of the mind that God gave us in the apprehension of, of truth. Contrary to what the Corinthians thought and contrary to what then many Christians think today. He's, uh, he's deceased now, uh, but there was one of the many TV preachers that are out there that you shouldn't watch was Kenneth Hagin. Anybody know that name, Kenneth Hagin? And Kenneth Hagin is a, a charismatic Pentecostal guy. And I remember uh, uh, hearing him once. So I, I tell you not to watch them, and then I quote what they say. Now, really, really, I've got books on my shelf that are, some of them are on my shelf just for negative illustration purposes. I mean, I have the book to be able to say, okay, this is what this says. This is what people claim. And likewise with this, you know, I, and, and, it, and you never have, you don't have to dwell long, you know, 15 minutes, and you're going to see some kind of crazy thing said. Years ago, Hagen, I heard Hagen say, uh, quote Proverbs 20 and verse 27. Proverbs 20, 27. It says this, The human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on one's inmost being. The human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on one's inmost being. And then he says, you know, in the King James, it says on one's belly. And he just kind of went like this, one's belly. So the, God communicates to your spirit, which is housed in the belly. That's what he's saying. To which I say, some of us have more of the spirit than others, clearly. <laughs> okay. But that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying that, that God knows everything that goes on with you, including in your, inmost, in your very inmost parts. He knows everything about you. But here, here's Hagen saying that God communicates to you in a way that bypasses your, your mind. So there is a, a history of this, and you know, if you're Pentecostal charismatic, you believe that in a very extreme way. If you're not Pentecostal and charismatic, then we have our own ways of saying that. We're going to see some of those today in our final session in worry-free decision-making. God led me to do X. And when you, and when you kind of drill down on how God leads, very often it is this bypass, I just feel it kind of thing. So we're going to see a couple of verses that do talk about the Spirit leading, but hopefully see those in context so that we don't make that kind of mistake. So page 25, the notes that you were given on the way in, we want to talk a little bit about some obstacles that keep us from using the mind that God gave us in order to process information objectively outside of ourselves, in order to 
then evaluate and make decisions properly. And there are some obstacles. Top of page 25. We have seen that there are several erroneous methods that are often used in making both life choices and moral decisions. Feeling-based, outcome-based, opportunity-based. That was in our very first session. One of the common features of these is an improper role for feelings as the arbiter of what is best. Many times, Scripture is cited in support of these mystical approaches. This lesson will examine the appeal to feelings and decision-making, including a review of the passages that are quoted to support it. Now, before we look at uh, the Bible in particular and what it has to say about this, we live in a time and in a culture where uh, there, has been, there has been a decline in the use of the Christian mind in circles that we frequent, Christian circles. So that's what I say here on page 25, the decline of the Christian mind. The, pi- the Bible places great emphasis on the use of the mind in the processing of spiritual truth. The scriptures teach that thought precedes action, or to put it another way, belief determines behavior. So Paul commands in Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then I quoted 1 Corinthians 14, 15 earlier. So Arthur Johnson has rightly observed, Christians have no grounds for rejecting reason. Christians cannot grasp God's truth without the use of this divinely given ability. The fact that God, in his sovereignty, chose to express his truth to us in rational words and ideas demonstrates that he intends for us to use our reasoning ability. But unfortunately, this priority of the mind has been deprecated by many well-meaning believers. The results... The result is, in the words of Harry Blamars in his book, The Christian Mind, there is no longer one. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, Christian practice, Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of the non-Christian. As a member of the church, he undertakes obligations and observations ignored by the non-Christian. As a spiritual being, in prayer and meditation, he strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But as a thinking being, that word thinking should be emphasized, The modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life, the view which sets all earthly issues in the context of the eternal, the view which relates all human problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, the view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness in terms of heaven and hell. So here are some reasons why this decline has taken place, and it affects even, and, and, and muchly, a, a good bit, it affects Christian people. So here are some religious reasons that there's been this decline. One is the myth of neutrality. And the myth of neutrality, what that does is it kind of lulls us into a complacency that I don't really have to think that much because the world is not, is not that bad, but that's, it's a myth. It's a myth that there is this neutrality. You are, you are either looking at life God's truthful and proper way or you're not, according to the Bible. So there isn't this neutral uh, approach. So we need to remember, top of page 26, that humanity is morally corrupt. Some people believe that humanity is morally neutral on a level playing field, yet the Bible gives a very different picture of humanity in passages like Ephesians 4 and famously Jeremiah 17. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
And as a result of this, God is, this is a Latin term, this is just my inner R.C. Sproul coming out here, throwing a Latin term out there for you, okay? Contramundum. And it means contrary to the mundane, the world. Contrary to the world, against the world. God is contramundum. He's opposed to the world as the Bible describes it. The world system, as I talked about last week, the cosmos, the arrangement that sets itself up independent of, of God. So God is opposed to the world, not just in terms of intent to defeat, but in mutual exclusivity. Whatever is of the world system and values is opposite of God's character and values. So on the night before Jesus is crucified, he prays this long prayer in John 17. And as part of that prayer to the Father, he says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Notice that the hard distinction between them. John writes in 1 John 2, I have written to you, fathers, because you know, who, uh, know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, notice the contrast, the hard contrast there. And then Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that's how you prove, that's how you show what the will of God is, that will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Through common grace, which is God's grace given to all humanity, the effects of total depravity have been counteracted to some degree so that all men are not equally bad and no one is as bad as he could be, thanks be to God. But all people have that as their nature. That's how we come into the world the way the Bible describes it here on page 26. So one of the reasons that there's been this decline is... Uh, religious reasons. One of those is this myth of neutrality, and then, as I said, mysticism. Top of page 27. As we saw previously, mysticism is this. It's a form of religious practice which seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of Him. It's an attempt to experience God through the senses rather than through the mind interacting with God's revelation in Scripture. And then there's pietism. Again, we saw that previously. It's a variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience. Pietism can lead to inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism. It can discourage careful scholarship. It ignores the meaning of the text of Scripture in favor of, quote, what it means to me. And the revelation of God then becomes subject to the mind of each individual as they read it rather than being subject to the intent of God as he wrote it objectively. And then just for us, you know, there is this history within our movement, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So I, if, if someone asked me, are you a fundamentalist, I would, I would say yes. Can I explain that <laughs> to you? Because the word fundamentalism has been hijacked, like a lot of terms over the years, and so people misunderstand it. But yes, I, I am a fundamentalist in that I believe in the fundamentals of the faith that are necessary for one to be a Christian. That you must believe in the inspiration the, and miraculous inspiration of the Bible. 
that you must believe in the blood atonement of Jesus for sin, that you must believe in the bodily resurrection of, of Christ, that you must believe in his literal return to earth to establish his kingdom. These are all things that the Bible teaches. This is just orthodox Christianity. And so, yes, I'm a, I'm a fundamentalist in that sense. And fundamentalists, people who really believe those things, then are not going to... Uh, are not going to join forces with those who deny them. So one element of being a fundamentalist is that you're willing to separate yourself from people who deny those things. And the Bible tells us to do that. In, uh, in Romans chapter 16, Paul says to mark those who cause divisions among you because they are not following the things that Paul, Paul taught. Uh, so the Bible has a number of places where it tells us that we are to identify people who are not teaching the truth, and if people are not teaching the truth, then we're not to be in league with, with those people. Just a quick aside, that doesn't mean everybody who just disagrees with you about something. Uh, you know, I have a lot of good friends, Christian friends. I'm a Presbyterian friend. You know, I disagree with my Presbyterian friends about baptism but it doesn't mean my Presbyterian friends aren't Christian. And thankfully, I have a lot of Presbyterian pastor friends who are preach the gospel, and I'm thankful for that. So it's not everything that we disagree about, but these core fundamental issues of Orthodox Christianity are part of the fundamentals, and they must be adhered to. But one of the things that happened with the fundamentalist liberal controversy of about 100 years ago was that a lot of people in our kinds of churches that believe that, they left the liberal churches along with the academies that had become liberalized, a lot of the seminaries and colleges that were controlled by the liberal, increasingly liberal denominations, and they left them. And having left them, they didn't always replace them with something. And so scholarship in a lot of circles fundamental circles to this day, is very much frowned upon. People will joke about going to seminary, and they call it cemetery. And, and this, is, this is in fundamental, fundamental circles. It's interesting that these guys, I, I know some of them. I was best man in the wedding of a guy when we were young. Pastor Rich and I were good friends with him in high school. And for the 40 years since he has been a headliner at evangelistic crusades and churches all over the country in this circle. Anti-academic, anti-knowledge, anti-scholarship, all of that. But one of the interesting things about these people is they love to be called doctor. This guy who was my friend 40 years ago is Dr. John Hamlin. You can Google that. Dr. John Hamlin, H-A-M-B-L-I-N. John doesn't have a doctorate. John didn't graduate from college. And they all give each other doctorates, honorary doctorates, and they call each other doctor. And in their printed material, they're all doctor and all that. So they despise scholarship, but they love those titles of, of doctor. But this is part of the history of what's led to this in in some circles. And then there are so the religious reasons, cultural reasons. The connotations of terminology, you know, discrimination. 
Discrimination has become a bad word because we most often associate that with like racial discrimination, and that is bad because you're making, you're making a division on a false basis. But the idea of being discriminating is a very good thing. You know, we sometimes say someone has a discriminating taste or something like that. That's using it properly. Dictionary definition is it's the ability or power to see or make fine distinctions, discernment, or criticism. But it simply means a serious examination and judgment of something, so an evaluation. But we live in a time where, you know, the, the, the one verse that people who know nothing about the Bible, the one verse they know something about is judge not that you be not judged. And we say things like, don't judge me. But if you're going to be a thinking person, you have to evaluate stuff. You have to think about stuff. And then you have to make choices, and you have to distinguish between those that are true and right and good and beautiful and those that are not. And krites in, is a Greek word in the New Testament that means to evaluate, to judge. So Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged in Matthew chapter 7, but he goes on to talk about what kind of judgment it is he's condemning, and it's hypocritical judgment, not all judgment. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 24, John 7, 24, John 7, 24, Jesus says, quote, judge righteous judgment. So he's telling you to judge, just judge the right way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15, 1 Corinthians 2, 15, the spiritually mature person evaluates, judges all things, the Bible says. So we've got to lose the idea that you don't judge. You, if you're going to be a Christian who separates truth from error, good from bad, you're going to have to evaluate. You're going to have to make judgments. So there's the connotations of terminology. There's the decline of education. And whenever I say something about education, the educational system, I have to say that our church is blessed with some people who are involved in the public education system and, and are a light in, 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 their, in their work and represent Christ in that and are fantastic teachers and do a great job with it. But overall, the, the way people are trained to not think in our day <laughs> through a lot of avenues is really, is really difficult. Um, George Orwell the guy who wrote 1984, and we talk about Orwellian sayings and that kind of thing. Top of page 28, he said, We have now sunk to such a depth that the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. Wow, okay, and that was in Orwell's day, and, it had, and let me just tell you, it hasn't gotten better since then. And then there's pluralism and relativism. Our increasingly and pluralistic culture consists of a number of di divergent voices, it's caused many to make the unwarranted leap into relativism. The fact that in a democracy, everyone has a right to express his opinion, that's pluralism, does not mean that all expressed opinions are equally right. That's relativism. But it's easy for people to get that mixed up. So we've got to develop uh, discernment. Uh, Pastor Larry and I have been doing uh, a podcast for the last couple of years because we weren't able to meet together for a while during COVID and all of that. And... You know, so for the most part, we accomplished what we wanted with the podcast. We were doing it every week. Then we started doing it once a month. And we're overdue this month, November, for our monthly podcast. Pastor Larry wrote to me and said, hey, do you want to get together? And I said, you know, 
I don't think too many people are clamoring for our monthly podcast. Now, there may be some fans who are really happy. I said, and, and, if, and if there are such, we will do one for both of them. <laughs> for both of the fans that we have for our podcast. But in all seriousness, uh, I, I'm looking to tra transition it to something more low-key. Uh, low-key so the production doesn't take you know, quite as long and all of that. Uh, and call it Discernment Digest. And just offer some thoughts from a biblical worldview about what's, about what's happening. And to do that weekly, and I hope first of the year to, to restart that. The reason I say that is because I believe this issue of discernment is huge. And I believe that the church needs it. We need to develop the ability to discern and discern as people who live in the world but are not of the world. So coming to a podcast near you and the two or five of you that are interested can listen. So we explained middle of page 28 what discernment is. Now let's talk a little bit about these verses uh, with regard to that are used for decision making. The Bible in individual direction. Following are some of the most often cited passages to support a mystical approach to decision making. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. What this verse teaches us is that trusting God and living his way will avoid many obstacles that would otherwise come. So many people have thought, and the way that's been translated in the past, you know, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. So notice the lean not on your own understanding. So it's sort of a mindless thing, we think, that we do. And uh, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths, is the way it's often translated. So it's not something that I think about, it's something the Lord does, and if I just place my trust in him, then I'll go in the, in the right path, including in my decision-making. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke tells the following story regarding the proper translation of this verse. I recall the astonishment, top of page 29, of one of the committee members assigned to translate the book of Proverbs for the New International Version when he discovered that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 had nothing to say about guidance. When confronted with the linguistic data, he had to admit reluctantly that the verse more properly read, he will make your path smooth, not that he will direct your decision-making, bypassing the mind. So it makes your path smooth because, generally speaking, which is what a proverb is, if you follow the Lord's way, you're going to avoid these unnecessarily obstacles in your life. And so you have a smoother path than you otherwise would have had, is the idea. Or sometimes Romans 8.14 is cited. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So it does talk about the leading of the Spirit here. You're led by the Spirit. So to what is one led, according to this passage? In context, it's clear that the Spirit's work leads one to do the moral will of God. Apart from such work of the Spirit, obedience to God's will would be impossible. Now, remember what we said, what we said the moral will of God is. The moral will of God is His revealed will. Those are synonymous. 
So it's found in a book. And the Spirit of God leads the children of God to want to and actually do obey what we read in Scripture. That's what it's, that's what it's saying. And if you look at the context of Romans chapter 8, around this verse, it's about obeying what the Lord tells us to do. So the Spirit is indeed active within each believer as we see what God has revealed, His moral will, causing us to want to do that, to accept it, to welcome it, to desire it. He convicts us when we fail to do it, the Bible teaches. But that's what leading is. You have it, that phrase used again in Galatians 5. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But again, if you look at the count, look at that's verse 18, Galatians 5, 18. You guys know a verse in Galatians chapter 5, just a few verses after that. Verse 22 is the, the famous fruit of the Spirit. So you get verses 19 through 21 right after this. Verses 19 through 21 are the acts of the sinful nature. And then it gives a list of the acts of the sinful nature. But in contrast to those, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So being led by the Spirit into what are we led, according to verses 22 and 23, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Again, the moral will of God. What God wants to produce in us in terms of character as we obey what he has said. Or John 16, 13. This too in John 16 is Jesus the night before he is crucified. He's giving instructions to the apostles about what's going to happen tomorrow. He started this instruction back in chapter 13 when he instituted the Lord's table at the Last Supper. Then in chapter 14, he begins by saying, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Because they're troubled. Okay, this is coming to an end. He's leaving us. But he says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. And then from chap John chapter 14, 15, and 16, in the upper room discourse, it's teaching discourse from Jesus. They're in an upper room. That's why it's called that. And he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, in effect, yes, I am leaving physically but I will be with you. I'm not abandoning you. And I'm going to give you another comforter. And he, the Holy Spirit, and he talks about that all the way into chapter 16. And one of the things he says about the Holy Spirit is this, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Likewise, look below that. Chapter 14, he said, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. So when I teach our class, one of our two foundational classes, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, which we're doing on Wednesday nights right now, so those of you that are in that class, some of you here are in that, you know that I say this. I go through those passages, and I say, um, those passages were given to the people he was talking to that night, the apostles. And the Lord makes a promise to them that he's going to bring to your remembrance, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit's going to bring, remind you of everything I've said to you. So what we do is we take those chapters, we take chapters 14, 15, and 16, and we say, God is going to remind me of everything. 
said Jesus said. So does that happen with you? Do you guys ever forget stuff? I mean, I know the answer to this, guys. You don't remember everything Jesus said. My memory is getting worse by the day. Uh, and I don't remember, I never did remember everything Jesus said, and I certainly don't now. Why did they need perfect recall of what Jesus said? Because they were going to write it down. They were going to write a book. So the apostles had a special ministry given to them. They did stuff you can't do. I stress that in How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible a lot of times because people get this wrong. But it's okay to say certain things happened in the first century that don't happen today. It's okay to say that. Can, can a new book of the Bible be added? We know the answer to this, right? No. Why can't a new book of the Bible be added? I mean, they were adding, they were adding them in the first century. People were writing books. Why can't we add books? Well, it's because those guys had qualifications that we don't have. Can you raise somebody from the dead? If you can, let me know. Okay? I already know the answer to this. But they could. And the Holy Spirit did this work in them to establish the church. And so I encourage you to not think you're going to be guided into all truth in some mystical sort of way. Here's how you're guided into truth, how I'm guided in truth. You study the book. You make application to your life of the book. Bottom of page 29, Colossians 3.15 and Philippians 4.7. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so the idea here, the way many people use it, is you will have, you will have an internal, subjective, kind of mystical peace when you've arrived on the right decision. If you pray about it enough, you'll get this peace. It feels like the right decision. No, neither of those verses are talking about it. But it's what so many Christians do. Now at the top of page 30, we'll see what they're talking about. But think about how devastating it is if you say, I have prayed about this. I have peace about it. God has given me my answer. I then take this particular route because of that, and then it blows up. How devastating is that? Well, wait a minute, God. You told me that this was the right approach. Well, not really told me. That's why at the top of page 25, the title of this lesson is God Told Me To, I Think, because we're not sure. And it's because we got this subjective, mystical approach to it. Top of page 30. In neither passage is the topic individual guidance for decision-making. Rather, in Colossians, the issue is harmony within the body of Christ. In Philippians, it's individual contentment with our circumstances. Stated another way, stated negatively, peace is absence of anxiety within a person. Or it's absence of hostility between persons. But it's not this mystical feeling that I've made the right decision. That's not what those passages were about. I mean, sometimes you make, 
you could make absolutely, of course, the right decision and feel horrible about it. I mean, if you're a parent, have you ever had to make decisions with regard to your kids and what you're going to do with them and you hated having to do it? Of course. But because you love them, you did it. But how much peace did you have about it? You may have felt awful. You may have cried having to punish them. The dangers of mysticism in determining God's will. As applied to discerning the will of God, mysticism rears its head via the inner impressions by which many believers seek guidance and often has the effect of undermining the authority of Scripture because, one, we enthrone our feelings. Our culture is awash in emotion. For many, what I feel is tantamount to truth. Feeling is believing. Therefore, to say, I feel led, ends all discussion. Who can question one's feelings? But God actually can. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So let's use that objective standard, not some subjective feeling standard. And it can, if you're not careful, rationalize sinful desires. When feelings are authoritative, it's very easy to devalue the primacy of the Word of God and His moral will revealed in it. If my desires are equated with God's will, who can question me? Never mind that each still suffers, each of us still suffers from the effects of depravity, and therefore we need to be very skeptical of our own motives and, and desires. I mean, here's just, here's just one that I've seen happen and I've had to deal with many times over the years. Look, the Word of God, the moral will of God, the revealed will of God says something about marriage and divorce, right? So if you're in a marriage and you're considering ending that marriage through divorce, then you should consult what God says about it. I would hope we would agree about that. But you wouldn't go, hey, I have peace about this. I know this is the right thing to do. Now, it might be the right thing to do. The Bible does give some conditions under which you can get a divorce. But let's go to the Word of God about this, and let's together, let's look at this, and then make a determination about it. But I've had, I've had a number of people over the years who do this, and they know they haven't consulted what God says about it, but they're sick of the marriage, frankly. And they want to get out of it. And I understand. It's been a, it really, I do understand. It's been a bad marriage. But they want to get out of it so they don't come and talk to me about it. They just do it and they take off. I've had a handful of people in our church over the years who've done that very thing. And I'm hoping none of you will be one of them. We're committed to what God says and then looking at what God says and then making application of that as best we can to our lives. All right, we're done. Uh, I have one more thing to tell you about, and that is Appendix A, which we mentioned in the notes a number of lessons ago, and I said we would make that available to you. We have copies of Appendix A, which is about the biblical mission as it's laid out in Scripture. We have copies of that on the Welcome Center desk that you are welcome to, to pick up. If we run out of those, we'll be happy to, to make more for pick up next week okay let's pray we'll be done father we thank you for today the blessings of today thank you for meeting with us and 
gathering us, giving us the health and the freedom and the desire to be here. I thank you for these dear friends and brothers and sisters who have come to learn of you and to grow in you. And I pray, Lord, that our time together will help us indeed to do that and that we will resolve, each of us, to put into practice what you have told us in your word. Go with us, we ask you this week, Lord, as we serve you in the places that you have assigned to us. We have this holiday of, of thanksgiving and help us of all people to be of all people most thankful because we know that all we are and all we have come to us from the hand of our gracious God. And so we do thank you, Lord, for creating us, for loving us. We thank you for saving us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you to help us to express that well as we observe Thanksgiving this week. Go with us, we ask. Keep us safe. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.